Hello, everyone. This is Robert J. Morgan, and thank you for tuning in. Years ago, I wrote a book called The Red Sea Rules, based upon the story of the Israelites going through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And that book has gone all over the world, and total sales are about a million copies. It's been used for Bible study groups everywhere, and I'm so grateful for the response to it. A couple of years ago, we followed it up with a sequel, The Jordan River Rules, based upon the parting of the Jordan River, the story that is told in the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. Now, later this year, we are coming out with the last of this trilogy. It's called The Mediterranean Sea Rules, and this will be a book that I hope you'll watch for and look forward to and maybe use in your own Bible study groups and for gifts and for your own personal edification. It is based on the voyage and the shipwreck of St. Paul the Apostle. In today's broadcast, we're taking you to the platform of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where I gave this message and went through the 10 Mediterranean Sea rules. I hope that you enjoy them, and thank you so much for listening. May God bless you with this material from the book of Acts, the last two chapters, 27 and 28, the Mediterranean Sea Rules. Well, good evening to all of you, and may the Lord just richly bless us for being here tonight. I appreciate all of you. I appreciate this church and the opportunity of being here. I especially appreciate Pastor Allen inviting me, and we need to gather together like this to remind ourselves of how God guides every one of us through whatever it is that we may go through. When I was in graduate school, I found a song that somehow I'd never heard before. It was an old gospel song, and I learned it. And at that time, I was trying to figure out what to do about a career and a ministry and about getting married and everything else. And this old song was a prayer, and I learned it almost instantly. And it said, Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and dangerous shoal. Chart and compass come from Thee, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. And to me now, that is still a prayer of my life, because we do go through storms, and sometimes the water is choppy. Some of you may be going through choppy waters or stormy weather right now. We never get too far away from some kinds of difficulties that we didn't expect. But we have all of these stories in the Bible about how Jesus is able to guide us through tempestuous times. And one of the greatest of all stories is the shipwreck, the voyage and the shipwreck of St. Paul the Apostle at the end of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles or maybe you have the handout for tonight, turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter number 27 and 28. This is a very vivid passage. There's something I really don't understand. I have been in church all of my life. Now, granted, many of those years I've been preaching, but I've been in churches listening to sermons for many, many years. 
and I almost have never heard a sermon on this passage. And even in Sunday school, you know, we have the story of David and Goliath and the story of the little boy breaking the loaves, but somehow I don't remember ever having a class in Sunday school on the shipwreck of St. Paul the Apostle. And yet it's the longest single narrative story in the book of Acts. It's a tremendously vivid story. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Acts, was present here on this doomed ship. And the passage itself is the most vivid account, live account, eyewitness account of an ancient shipwreck in all of antiquity. So it's a very wonderful story, but the best thing of all is out of this story, we can extrapolate some lessons about what we should do when we encounter some stormy weather. And so I have drawn out three uh, ten different principles from this story in Acts 27 and 28. I call them the Mediterranean Sea Rules, ten principles about navigating life's tempestuous sea. And I want to deal with five of them tonight. In the morning, I'll deal with the other five. But the first five, I'm just going to give you, we'll look at the text, I'll say some words about it. It's going to be very simple. But here is the first one. When your plans collapse, make sure that you don't. When your plans collapse, make sure that you don't. So let's begin here in Acts 27, verses 1 and 2. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded the ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Now, the background here is very important. I've dealt with this a little bit in previous sermons here, but I want to just review it for you in case you don't know exactly what is happening, because the story just, it really begins in Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul is finishing his third missionary tour. He comes down to the city of Corinth. He has finished everything that he wanted to do, and so he now begins to plan a fourth missionary tour, and he decides that he wants to go to Spain, and he meets in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 3. We know this from several different cross-references. In the home of Gaius, a wealthy person in Corinth, and he meets with his advisors. He's a strategist, and he plans this fourth missionary tour. And then he decides that he is going to go to Jerusalem and take the offering that he has collected from the churches of Asia and Europe and take it down to the church in Jerusalem that was impoverished and deliver that offering. And then he was going to go on to Rome, and from Rome he was going to go to Spain. And many scholars believe that Paul really thought that he could fulfill the Great Commission in his generation by taking the gospel to the very western edges of the Mediterranean world and of the Roman Empire. And so he made all of those plans to leave Corinth, go to Jerusalem, leave the offering there, then go to Rome, and then on to Spain, and he wrote to the Romans, and he told them, this is what I'm going to do. So let me go over to Romans chapter 15, because I want you to see this. He says in Romans 
15 and verse number 23. He said, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. And it goes on in verse 28, so after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to see you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. And so he sent that letter on to Rome while he went to Jerusalem intending to be there just a few days, deliver the offering, and then go on to Spain. Nothing happened the way he expected. Nothing did. Every plan he made fell apart. He got to Jerusalem and was immediately the center of controversy there, and he provoked a riot. He didn't mean to, but his very presence in the city it was a very volatile time in that city, and the Romans captured him to protect him from being plummeled to death by the mob, and then he was imprisoned in Jerusalem by the Romans and narrowly flogged, and then narrowly assassinated, so they moved him to the Roman city of Caesarea on the Israeli coast, and there he was imprisoned for two years, and then they put him on this ill-fated ship. And we have what's going to unfold in chapters 27 and 28. And then he finally got to Rome, but he was in prison there for at least another two years. In other words, Paul prayerfully made, carefully thought through plans. And he committed them to God. And he told other people what they were. And they all fell apart. But he didn't. He never did. He understood the sovereign God is over all of the affairs of men. He had committed his plans to the Lord, and when they didn't work out, well, he accepted that. Now, I believe the Lord wants us to set goals and to make plans. Both individually and as congregations, we need to do that. But when our plans are committed to the Lord, then he navigates the route and he doesn't always take us exactly where we expect. It may be different than we planned. But here's what is so important. This is the secret of the Christian experience of guidance. Detours often are God's thoroughfares. Detours are often God's thoroughfares. And disappointments are his sovereign appointments. Now, we don't always see that immediately, but I want to tell you, when I look back over my life, I've had some real moments of disappointment. And when that disappointment comes, it just sort of punches you in the stomach. And some of you maybe in this past week have suffered some disappointment. But if you will give it some time, 
it's all going to open a door to greater blessings than you would have had than if the thing you're disappointed about had actually happened. That's the amazing thing about the providence of God. And I can look back now, if I had time, I could give you example after example of times when I was so disappointed about something, but now looking back, I say, hallelujah, Lord, that you closed that door and I had that disappointment because it was your sovereign appointment and you were simply preparing me for something greater. And this is exactly what was true for Paul. He was, his plans didn't work out, but it's because God had deeper, better, richer, more vivid, more exciting, more exhilarating plans than Paul could have conceived on his own in that villa of Gaius with his friends at the end of his third missionary tour. You know, I'll give you one very brief example. I probably wouldn't be standing here tonight speaking to you if the city of Lahore had not sunk in New York Harbor into the Hudson River in 1918. That was a great ship. And this was the end of World War I. And I had a man whose family I know. His name was Robert C. McQuilkin, and he was going to go on the city of Lahore, that great steamship, to Africa with his family to be missionaries there. And this was at a time at the end of the war when there were very few ships now back on, passenger ships back on the oceans. But he found the city of Lahore, he booked passage, his family put all of their things there. They went to say goodbye, and while they were saying goodbye, the ship caught fire and sunk in 1918 in New York Harbor. They couldn't find another ship. And so Robert C. McQuilkin went on the road preaching, and he came down to Columbia, South Carolina, and there were some ladies there who had been praying so earnestly for a Bible Institute in the South that would be like Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And they had started a little fledgling school, and they said to Robert C. McQuilkin, will you be the president? And he was a man that believed in the power of the Holy Spirit and the deeper Christian life and the victorious Christian life. And he said, I will. And that school became Columbia Bible College and now Columbia International University. And it was there in 1971 that I gave my life to the Lord. I spent three years there. Everything I know about the Bible has its roots in those three years. And I don't think I would be here if that ship hadn't sunk in 1918, which to Dr. McQuilkin at the time was a tremendous disappointment. <laughs> but you see how everything works out. It does work out. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. So when your plans fall apart, Make sure you don't. Secondly, trust the slow work of God. Trust the slow work of God. Look at verse 3. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. So they sailed out of Caesarea. Just, you may want to look at a map sometime and get the route, but they sailed up to Sidon. And the centurion there was looking for another boat, and they found another ship. And there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And he said, when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now this would have been an Egyptian freighter, one a military ship. This was a big Egyptian cargo ship because the Egyptians provided grain for all of the Roman Empire, and so they were always going back and forth. So the centurion uh, commandeered this cargo ship and put his prisoners on board. And it says in verse 7, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sindus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was past the Day of Atonement. In other words, it was getting into the late fall when it was more difficult to sail. Now, look at all of those phrases that Luke wrote about how difficult this was. He said, the winds were against us, we made slow headway, we had difficulty, the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we moved with difficulty, much time was lost, and sailing had become dangerous. All of those phrases letting us know that Basically, the winds are against us and we're not making any progress. Do you ever feel that way with whatever it is you're doing? Oh, the winds are against us. We're just not making the progress with our finances, with our company, with our business, with whatever it is. It's like we are sailing against the wind. It takes longer than we think sometimes for the Lord to bring about his will and his perfect fruition to our lives. When I began pastoring here in Nashville, up north of here, it was the first Sunday of 1980, and we had one little girl then, and my wife and I, we started pastoring, and a friend who was there reminded me just the other day that there were 78 people in that first service, 78. And I was so young and idealistic I thought within three or four years, we'll have 5,000. And I just assumed that was going to happen. And I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and within five years, we had 200. And I began thinking, this is taking longer than it should. And I began feeling a great sense of defeat and discouragement and failure. And I had to work through all of that. Well, to make a long story short, I was there 42 years. We went from 78 to about 1,500, and I learned a lot of lessons in it, including that numbers is only one indication of a healthy church. There are many others instead that you've got to focus on. But the greatest lesson was that God does His work in our lives in His time. He has His own calendar. He knows the schedule. And so we work faithfully and do what He tells us to do, but we trust his scheduling. If things aren't happening as fast as you want in your life, may have to do with the romance, may have to do with the business, may have to do with family, whatever it is, trust God's timing. When you commit it to Him, then He knows exactly when all things should take place. And there is this phrase in the Bible, wait on the Lord. Psalm 27 says, wait on the Lord and be of good strength. 
Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Isaiah 30, blessed are all those who wait for him. James, be patient then, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the form, farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. He waits patiently. And Jude said, keep yourself in God's love and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep yourself committed to him and then just wait. Now, it doesn't mean that we're lazy or that we don't do what we need to do. We have our part to do. But we cannot do God's part. And God's part in whatever it is we're doing is the most important thing. And so we have to wait for his timing to coordinate with ours. There's a verse that God gave to my wife and I independently about a month before she died. She's in heaven now. But she went down very, very quickly, and I rushed her to Vanderbilt Hospital. And they said, she's not going to make it. I said to the doctor, would you mind if we prayed? He said, would you mind if I led you in prayer? And he prayed for us, and suddenly she opened her eyes, and the Lord gave us another month with her. And as I was bringing her home about three days later, the verse that came into my mind says, our times are in his hands. And I was rolling Katrina in her wheelchair through the front door. She said, well, it just wasn't quite my time yet, but my times are in his hands. And I said, that's just the verse the Lord gave me. And that's true for all of us. We're born at just the right time. We're living at the right speed. We're going to die just when God alone knows. And we're right where he wants us to be. And if we are in his will, we trust his slow work. It may take longer than you think to gain victory in some area of life. It may take longer than you think to achieve what you want to achieve. But it's God's timing. He never is before his time and never is behind. So trust the slow work of God. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Recording, engineering, and audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again.